Welcome to the Lisa Wexler Show podcast. Think of it like a magazine or a box of chocolates. You never know what you'll get. From politics to pop culture, healthcare to legal issues, it's all here. And my behind-the-wheel chats are personal observations created especially for you on podcast only. Enjoy. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You know, it seems like the story of human nature is very often a story of those who are persecuted because they're different or because for whatever reason, their behavior threatens other people and they can't handle it. And such is the story very often of our obsession in early New England with witches and witchcraft. Joining us now is Catherine Hermes, who is a publisher of Connecticut Explored. She has an extraordinary um, history herself. She has an extraordinary devotion to her craft and unbelievable credentials. She received her A.B. in history cum laude from the University of California at at Irvine, an M.A. and a master's in philosophy and history at Yale, a J.D. from Duke University School of Law, and her Ph.D. in colonial American history from Yale University. She's currently Professor Emerita at Central Connecticut State University in the History Department, where she served as department chair and taught courses on Anglo-American legal history and Native Americans of the Eastern Woodlands. So this is a woman who is truly a great, great authority. She is the co-author of articles and book chapters on Native American history in New England, and she directed the Uncovering Their History Project, which examines African African-American and Native American burials in Hartford's ancient burying ground from 1640 to 1815. Catherine, what a pleasure for you to come in studio. I'm so happy to meet you. I'm happy to meet you, too, and it's great to be here. So this is very exciting, Catherine. So uh, you are steeped in education. You really believe in it. I do, and um, I think it was worth all the time and effort to obtain that education. It's been a real privilege you're not a practicing lawyer. No, I wanted to be a legal historian. And um, when I was young, I did want to be a lawyer. And then when I realized that there was a field called legal history, I went right for it. And what is the field of legal history? We look at the social uh, effects of law on people. We can also look at changes in the law over time. And What I like to look at is how ordinary people make or change the law by the way that they go to court, the things that they argue. Um, I've spent a lot of time looking at 
Native legal history and how um, Native people in this region in the colonial period went to court and argued for their concept of justice. And by Native people, you mean the indigenous tribes? Yes. They would go into white people's courthouses and say, okay, I understand there's this new law of the land. Let me have my peace. Let me speak. Yes. And they would have demands upon the settlers, which in the beginning, um, sometimes the settlers were willing to meet. And then, but over time, they became, the settlers became less willing to concede to Native concepts of justice. So that's so interesting. So, oh, I feel like I have to take your car course. So, Catherine, um, one of the things that I was told, and I've repeated on the radio, so correct me if I'm wrong. I have a very dear friend who's Native American and is not only Native American, but she grew up on a tribe and she coordinated the 150 tribes that were the welcoming ceremony for the Olympics, you recall, in Salt Lake City. So she's a tremendous asset to her people. She's amazing, Phyllis. Anyway... I had heard from her and others that the original concept of Native Americans, and they weren't all the same, obviously, but Mm -hmm. that the tribal concept was that private property was not really owned in the same way that the white man thought about owning property, that their relationship to the land was much more of a, you know, here we are to use it while we're alive, and then we have to leave it a certain way while we're gone, but we don't own it the same way that we have this exclusive private property right thing that the white man brought. Is that true? Yes. So it is true. So all all indigenous land was in a sense held in common. And the people, the indigenous people who were in various tribal entities, they knew where their boundaries were. And the other people around them also knew where those boundaries were. So it wasn't as if they had no concept of Territory. Borders or territory. Okay. But they tended to, you know, think of the land as something that gave to them. And so they had farms. By the time that the settlers arrived here, the woodland peoples were mainly farmers. They had the maize that we read about, like on Thanksgiving? Yes, and the three sisters. Okay. Beans and corn and squash. Okay. And they hunted and supplemented with fishing um, supplemented their diets, but primarily they were agriculturalists. Is that right? Hmm? So were they, they weren't uh, shooting and killing the deer, for example, and eating them? Oh, they would do that, yes. I mean, as a as a protein supplement, the, the men were hunters. Okay. Um, but the women were really in charge of, you know, what we call food sovereignty, right? The, the ownership of foodways. Interesting. So what are the kind of disputes that they would bring to the white, the white man's courtroom after they saw that the way they would probably, they probably had their own courts and the way they handled disputes, and they realized they weren't getting anywhere on their own. How, how quickly did they grasp English, Catherine? Um, well, you know, so it's funny because the pilgrims of Plymouth Colony, when they landed, they were greeted in English by no a way. native person. Yes, Is that right? Because he had been to England. Um, I think lo- I read that story. Yes, a lot of a lot of fishermen in the North Atlantic had already begun taking native people back to England as slaves. Uh, um, no, not usually. Okay. Um, sometimes to put on display, but sometimes just as other fishermen. Okay, so this person greeted them in English. So, are you saying that English became generally familiar to the Native Americans pretty quickly? I don't. I don't know that it became 
the lingua franca, so to speak. Um, Native people learned what we might call a pidgin, so kind of combinations of Native words and English words. Um, There were translators in the court, so when the people came to court, uh, when Native people came to court, typically they would speak their own language and it would be translated by a white person who had some knowledge. And what kind of, just give me an example of the kind of things they would ask for. We're chatting with Catherine Hermes, who's a historian. So, um, for example, it was illegal for a colonist to sell alcohol to a Native person. And if a Native person happened to come into town, was given alcohol or was sold alcohol and got drunk, um, we have a case in the New Haven town uh, town court records where... The native person said, I didn't ask for this. I was given this alcohol. And so the dam- there was also damage done to me. And the court had the person who gave the native person the alcohol pay a fine. And the native person also paid a fine. So there was a kind of reciprocity um, because the native person said, this isn't my fault. We don't have alcohol. It's not ours. You know, it's alcohol yours. has been a has been the worst thing for the Native American people. There's some kind of genetic predisposition towards alcoholism. It's eviscerated a tremendous amount of tribal life. There's a there's a wonderful book by Peter Mancall called Deadly Medicine that I recommend if you're interested in finding finding out about alcohol in the colonial period and temperance movements started among Native people. Is that right? Yeah. So why was the law originally, was it for the benefit of the Native American people or the white people to not sell alcohol to them? Like, was was there a recognition from Earl? I'm, I'm just trying to put a beneficial spin on this. Was there any recognition that it was really bad for them or was it because of another reason? I think they did realize that it was not part of Native culture and so it was something like guns or even livestock that Europeans introduced that caused a lot of problems in Native society for a variety of reasons. And Native people didn't have, at at contact, they didn't have the kind of cultural knowledge to deal with these things. And over time, they didn't either. It's very sad. Mm-hmm. Alcoholism is still a huge problem on campuses, I mean, on, on tribes and, and reservations. So, Catherine Hermes, I originally asked you to come on because we were going to talk about witches. I feel like I could talk to you forever about a million things. Uh, and you're the first legal historian that I've met. So this is really a delight to me. Um, but it was remarkable to me that it took until May of 2023, like just a few months ago, to formally exonerate the people that were accused of witchcraft in Connecticut. If you can, tell us a little bit about the history of accusations of witchcraft in Connecticut. The very first accusation and execution that we know of um, in British North America was Alice Young in May of 1647. And we don't really know why. Uh, There's a speculation that there was a flu epidemic that caused a lot of deaths in Windsor. And that may have been the reason that she was accused. Because on Backer Row, where she lived, um, there were quite a lot of deaths first of all, in one family, and then just on that street in general. Um, And so what, they thought that she caused them, that she was this angry person who put a spell on them or something? It's possible that that's, but we don't have any information because there are only two records that reference Alice Young, and that's in the diary of Matthew Grant, where he simply records the day that she was hanged and why, and a reference in John Winthrop's 
journal where she's not even named, but the date corresponds, and it says one of Windsor How was hanged. How old was she? We don't really know. Okay. Because we, we haven't been able to identify who she actually was. And how many more people were accused of witchcraft? Um, there were, I believe, 11 in Connecticut who were hanged. And then um, I can't remember exactly the number who were accused. But the last hanging in Connecticut was in 1663, unlike in Massachusetts, where the last hanging took place in 1692. So 1663 was the last. Did we hang mostly women, by the way? Or were there any men hanged? There were men who were hanged. Um, but were they called witches or were they called warlocks? They were called witches. Witches. And they, but it was mostly women. Um, the reason that men, I think, were accused at all was usually because they had wives who were accused of witchcraft, and they were seen as in some way aiding or abetting them. Most men kind of abandoned their wives when they were accused of witchcraft. <laughs> and, and what kind of things would prompt an accusation of witchcraft? It could be illnesses. For example, the case that I just found that's published in Connecticut Explored took place in 1716, so much later, right? And it was a civil case, not a criminal case, where Susanna Howard, who was watching her father waste away from a disease, gave testimony in a case where the doctor was suing her father to pay his bill. Oh. Oh. Right. And so... So Susanna... Her defense was... <laughs> Go ahead. So, so Susanna gives this strange testimony um, that the doctor, she says, um, said that sometime in the last summer past, I heard Dr. Williamson say at my father's house that he could charm a snake to death in speaking a few words. And further, he said that in England, in a by place, there was a circle and he went into it and he had a book that he read in and after he had read a while, he raised the devil, and the devil strove with him for the book, and he held it fast under his arm, and after that, he opened the book and read. Further, she says, he could bewitch a witch, and he could raise the spirits and lay them again at his pleasure. So this is a novel an, defense. Quite an extraordinary story. Yes. And, and was, it, was it credible? In other words, did the judge listening to this believe her? Well... There was no criminal case ever filed against the doctor. and But the people didn't have to pay the bill? <laughs> <laughs> they, the court did seem to think that the doctor may have been overcharging. Ah, there um, you go. And um, the Nothing doctor new had, under the sun, Catherine. The doctor had three pages of medicines that he prescribed. And let me just say, you would not want to have been Samuel Howard. Probably not. All yeah. kind of tinctures of this and that, huh? Indeed. Indeed. Wow. Well, you know, poison. What do we say today? Medicine is poison. A lot of people say it. I say that, you know, I'm, I'm kidding you right now because I'm, I'm on s massive doses of steroids right now for these two terrible ear infections I have. And, um, and my friend this morning told me I'm turning into a teenager because of my very nice pudgy cheeks. <laughs> uh, anyway, but we're chatting with Catherine Hermes. Um, Catherine, I, I feel like this is a fantastic conversation. Uh, when you go back and you immerse yourself in, this, in these colonial writings and everything, what comes over you? I always feel a sense of thrill and curiosity. Um, for example, when I found the Susanna Howard document, I was looking for 
people of African or Native descent who might have been in the Hartford County court records for the Burying Ground Project that you mentioned. And what I came across was this Dr. Williamson versus Samuel Howard lawsuit. And believe me, when I opened that envelope and I saw the word witch, I couldn't believe it. I And, you know, there's almost this doubt, like, have I really found something here that nobody else has seen and, and the or answer was yes. About? And the answer was yes. Yes. Yeah. So these allegations of witchcraftery, they hung around for a long time. Sarah Morin, who's the project archivist for the New Haven County Court Records at the State Library, found one from 1742 where the widow Elizabeth Gould sued her neighbor, Mr. Chittenden, for slander because he accused her of witchcraft. And he used the kind of language that we would have seen in the 17th century. He says her specter came and sat on him and caused him to bleed from the nose or bleed from the mouth. And, you know, it's this kind of sexualized thing where she's straddling him. But she's a widow. I know. In her I 70s. saw that. He's, yeah. I read the article. It said she, something with the breast. Yeah. She she came down on my breast or something yes. so hard. W- what was he saying? Uh, was he saying they had sex together and she was too strong for him? Well, um, I don't understand that. It, it it wasn't exactly sex. I don't think. But what was that? The, but this is sort of a typical thing in the case of Mercy Disbro in Fairfield in 1692. Uh, a man testifies that she came to him and again like straddled him, sat on him, and bit his toes. It's very- and he wanted to tell people that? <laughs> he did. He wanted her convicted of witchcraft. <laughs> wow. And she was not. She was yeah. not. Yeah. So there were these trials where people were not always convicted. Everything was not like the crucible. Right. Um, and I think in Connecticut, there was more doubt. So John Winthrop Jr., who was a governor in Connecticut who brought the charter back from England, he was skeptical of witchcraft accusations. It's not that he didn't believe in any witchcraft at all, Mm -hmm. but he was skeptical of a lot of the claims, especially spectral evidence. And so he insisted upon a two-witness rule, which was the rule at common law. You have to be able to corroborate testimony. And that's a rule we still hold by today, right? You can't have uncorroborated... Except for rape. We've gotten rid of it for rape. Right. And, we used to have it for rape, which is why we never convicted rapists. That's right. And uh, and so Winthrop was instrumental, really, in ending executions in Connecticut for the crime of witchcraft. Is witchcraft still a crime? No. Um, it's First of all, um, there was a massive kind of backlash in the 18th century and it became a crime in England to accuse people of witchcraft. Mm, okay. Because it was abused. Terrible. Yes. Terrible. Catherine Hermes, can you stay around a little bit? Because Wayne Winston is joining us. And we talk on Wednesdays about uh, we talk about what's happening in the world of African-American history. And we also talk about race relations a lot. And I, I'm interested a little bit in this burial ground project. And I think Wayne Winston would be interested in it, too. So we're going to be right back with just a moment. Wayne Winston is going to join us. Catherine Hermes, I'm going to ask you as a prominent historian to tell us a little bit about what you've been working on with this African-American burying ground. We'll be right back. Thank you. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. And welcome back to the show. Wayne Winston joins us on uh, Wednesdays at this time. Hey, Wayne. Welcome. Hey. Hey. Thank you, thank you. Uh, I just thought it would be interesting, Wayne, if you don't mind. I've got a very prominent historian in studio with us, Catherine Hermes, and she happens to be the director uh, the leader of an African-American burying project, something that she, well, we're going to hear about now. In Hartford, I thought you and I in our audience could learn a little bit about it because I don't know much about it. So, Catherine, go ahead. Tell us about this. What right. is this? So, in um, 2018, the Ancient Burying Ground Association asked for proposals to figure out how many people of color were buried in the ancient burying ground because this number 300 had always been thrown around, but they really didn't know. And interestingly, in 1997, some middle school children from Fox, um, Fox Middle School in Hartford had done work on, dis- on finding out information about the black governors of Hartford. Okay. Black governors were political leaders elected by the enslaved population in Hartford and Derby and New Haven, so in lots of different cities. And... They were important liaisons between the black community and the white community. They, of course, were ceremonial figures, at least. But they were elected by a slave population or by the slave and free black population? Well, it's unclear if the free black population voted for them. But But certainly this was among slaves. How many slaves did we have in Connecticut, Catherine? Uh, There were thousands. Really? Yes. And it's it surprises a lot of people, but um, one of the things that I uncovered in the burying ground uh, project, we found about 500 people we think may have been buried in the ancient burying ground who were both native or of African descent. And, um, for example, in seven, how would we know? Did they dig up the bodies? Oh no! There, no. First so, of all, there's no archaeology going on. This okay. was all. So explain how do this you do was this? All, this was all done through. Records. So we have a few sextons records, that is, cemetery records kept by the sexton of who was buried there. What's a sexton? A sexton is a person who tends the cemetery. Okay. And um, this was a secular position paid for by the town. I see. So the cemeteries didn't belong to churches. Okay. And pretty much anybody who died in Hartford was buried in the ancient burying ground in Hartford unless they elected to be buried somewhere else. So... We have, for example, a man named Norman Morrison, who was a doctor from Scotland, um, very educated man. He owned seven sixteenths of a schooner. And in the year that he died, he imported at least 30 people who went to a farm in Bolton. Okay. And these were people from Senegambia. Imported, so, you mean slaves? Yes. He brought slaves from West Africa in 1761. 
It's pretty late, isn't it's it? It's very late. And this is commemorated actually on the New London Black Heritage Trail. They just put a plaque in last year. Um, this was not um, atypical. It was a, It was something that was happening all the time. And the transatlantic slave trade database which is online we were able to contribute that voyage to its collection of almost thirty-seven thousand voyages transatlantic voyages that took place between 1493 and um 1888 1888 is the last time we imported slaves to this country that was from brazil that was for Brazil, Brazil ended their international oh, slave for trade. Brazil. In oh, this is this is not just the, the tr- United States right. of America; it's the whole slave trade. Right. Right. Tell me about this. There is an online portal where you can find out about trips that were made from slaves. Yes. Um, so the the transatlantic slave trade database has been around since the late 1990s, and it's online and searchable. It's amazing. And you can put in captains' names. You can put in uh, the ship's name. Uh, so for someone doing a genealogy record, it's extraordinary. Well, it's not genealogical. No, but uh, I mean, if you already know a name, you can find uh, out more about the name. You, you can find out about their you, life, I mean. You can't find the people. but You, you can cannot. Fi- no, but you can find uh, out about the voyage. So you can find out that X ship went from port A to port B in this year. Yes. But then you wouldn't know who was on that. The manifests right. are not there. Right. Unless, like we found... We had the names of the people who were imported because they were in his probate record. Wow. Because when he died, it was um, they had to be sold. All right. I've seen and, those. And so anyway, the, the people that we found, um, when, I, when I put in my proposal, what I said was, I don't want to just write a report that's going to get stuck in a drawer. I want to create a memorial where each person will have a profile. And we'll do an Ancestry.com tree for everybody that we have names for. And then we'll do relationship trees for a few people where we're able to map their, um, like, enslaved person and enslaver and business partners and people that they willed their estates to. And so we have both ancestry trees and relationship trees. We have narratives and we have individual profiles on this website at um, AfricanNativeBurialsCT.org. You're really something else. I I am devoted to trying to give um, give life to people in, in a certain kind of way who have been forgotten, and to try to de- develop as much as I can about them. When when did we make slavery illegal in so Connecticut? In Connecticut, there was what we call a Gradual Emancipation Act in 1784. That, 1784? Yes. That didn't free everyone. And so the last enslaved person in Connecticut, I think, was freed in 1840. It was 1827 in New York. So we were after New York. Yes. Uh, Wayne Winston, are you listening to this? Absolutely. Riveting, and isn't it? The, it's riveting. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing um, that you're saying that is so powerful is that in, in the case that you're you're speaking of, that you at least were able to recover names because the names were intact because of how they came from Portugal, where the slave trade itself was about erasing the identities of black people, which is why, like, my name is Wayne Winston from whoever my owners were, our families, and it's it's very troublesome trying to reach back 
and figure out, you know, where we came from. So what you have here in Connecticut through your work is absolutely important because at least you've been able to connect that. Um, and, you know, there's things you talk about reparations and so on because reparations is built upon um, does America owe anything to, you know, black people of the African descent at all beyond being able to take advantage of the wealth that we created. Um, and I think part of that anyway should be we should have some way to at least trace back our roots to where we came from. And um, at least from the parts of Africa that we came from, because we obviously will not know our kinfolk, but we can know where as a, a, a nation, as a country that we came from. People want to know where they come from, and that's a big issue for black people in America. The majority will never know for obvious reasons. Right. Um, but it means something, just as, you know, the Jewish people and the Irish people and the Italian people, you know, we didn't come through Ellis Island. You know, we came through a, a slave ship that was all about exploiting the bodies and making sure that they had workers and, you know, cared less about that. Then we had the splitting of the families where you could just take the child, sell them to someone else, and then somebody else would give them another name. So I think your work is very important um, to be able to bring life to those names that we can. But I'm curious, um, is that something that's on the other side of the work that you want to be interested in? And as far as the black burial grounds, I mean, is that limited to that or do you have something else in mind? Well, so I I took on this project um, partly because I was a specialist in um, indigenous history in the area. And so I'd already been working on Wangunk genealogies. And what's that? Um, the Wangunk were the people of Hartford who invited the English into Connecticut. And they lived all along in the territory that went down past Middletown to Haddam. They occupied what is now Haddam Island State Park. They were in Wethersfield and Glastonbury, um, Killingly, and a number of other places. So they were quite large at the time of settlement. And uh, Hartford was their village of Sakyog. And Sakyog, I, it was called? Sakyog. Yep. Sakyog, okay. And I got very interested in this because I transcribed the will of Sarah Onepenny the Elder, who, had, who left everything to her grandson, Scipio. And Scipio was a man of... He had an African father and a Wangunk mother. And what I learned, although it took me about 15 years to establish all of this, um, what we learned is that he went with Colonel William Whiting to Newport, Rhode Island, and became the most litigious person of color in Newport, early Newport, Rhode Island, so in 18th century Newport. And he had something like 40 lawsuits and he was suing, what, to establish his rights? He felt that that was a forum that he could be heard? Yes, he was suing and countersuing. And he's the only person of color in Newport to countersue, which is something I think he took from his Wangunk grandmother. That's an amazing story. Wayne, isn't this amazing? It's amazing. You know, um, it, it triggers the thought of the Amistad, which happened here in Connecticut. Yes, Um you know, building the ship and, you know, the commitment that it took to get that done. And a lot of people, uh, I think they may have missed that when it came out because timing is everything. And um, just, you know, revisiting this, it's it's very exciting um, 
to hear that something like that happens. And I can tell you, I'm not sure if you've done much work down this end with Fairfield County, like the Golden Hill Pagussets, who um, is native uh, indigenous people, tried to get their um, sovereignty uh, approved. And it was always a bumpy road. In fact, at one point, I even went to Hartford a couple times on behalf of their uh, families. Yes. And um, I found it was interesting. And I was wondering if you have any light to share on that. That would be great. And again, the Amistad um, is a magnificent movie that shows how difficult that it was. And like here, this is someone who got the court fighting for their freedom. Yep. You know what? I'm we're going to be right back. Catherine Hermes is here. Wayne Winston. We're having a conversation about Black and Native American history in Connecticut, and we're going to continue with it. We are enthralled with the knowledge of Catherine Hermes, who is a great asset to Connecticut, as she is a professor emeritus at um, CCSU. She holds a law degree, many beautiful history degrees, philosophy. And this woman is really a Renaissance woman. And uh, we ended up getting into a conversation about African-American burial grounds and where that is going to. I thought that was very apropos of our weekly conversation with Wayne Winston, who joins us as well. Hi, Wayne. Welcome back. Okay. Uh, this is um, very exciting and very elating. And uh, that's why I asked about, you know, the Amistad, that history that Connecticut actually, even during that time, had their moment. And they had slaves way longer than they should have. But that whole uh, thing with, with um, Sinke, um is so important. And I was also asking about, you know, being able to, where, where would that go? And do you know much about the Golden Hill Pagusset situation here? Um, well, I'm, a, I'm a, on the uh, Board of Trustees for the Institute of American Indian Studies in Washington, Connecticut. And Leon Brown is Golden Hill Pagusset, and he's also on our board. Um, I haven't studied the history of the Pagussets as much as I have the Wangunk and, Ten- and Tunxus in central Connecticut. Um, oh. but, um, but I know a little bit of their history, and they were put, of course, under an overseer, and their records are in um, the probate court records. Even though they're not about death or anything, they're not wills, uh, the overseer's records are there. The overseer? Like the overseer yes. of plantation overseer? Um, in a similar way, the overseers were appointed by the Connecticut government to uh, manage finances and govern, in a sense. Of what? Of slave populations? Of the native population. Of native populations. Yes. Yes. Um, so it's a little different than the plantation overseer who's kind of watching people work and enforcing uh, tasks. But the overseer for indigenous people, um, you know, managed where they could go, what food they had. Catherine, you mentioned this very litigious Scipio, I think. Scipio. Scipio. Mm -hmm. How common was it for Native Americans and African Americans to have families together? Uh, It was pretty common, especially, um, especially in the later part of the 17th century and into the 18th century. Did they marry? Yes. Um, Well, when they could. So enslaved people had to have the permission of the master to marry. And this is something I cover in the Ancient Burying Ground Project. Um, You could, when enslaved people in a household, for example, got together and had a child that the master didn't approve of, 
they would be whipped. They would be taken to court, charged with fornication, and whipped. But they couldn't get married without the permission of the master. Um, so, you know, in many ways, just daily injustices carried out against them. Um, Native people, except for the Pequot captives um, and some captives in King Philip's War, Native people were typically not enslaved for life, but they were often, they often got in debt and their labor was purchased. Like a servitude sentence. Yes, like, like an indentured servitude situation. And many were servants. So Sarah Onepenny the Elder she was a sunk squaw, meaning a high tribal elder, female elder, among the Wangunk in Middletown. But she lived in Hartford with William Whiting and raised his daughter as a servant. So the the whole servant uh, Was it position, her daughter as well or just his daughter? Just his daughter. So um, did she have any children of her own? She did. She had, um, she had three sons. Who and one of whom became the sachem or the chief in Middletown for the Wangunk. And she had at least two daughters, one of whom was Scipio's mother, and then another who became the sunk squad of Middletown when uh, Sarah One Penny, the elder, died. It's just amazing how when you talk about these people, right, Wayne, they come to life. Isn't it amazing? Like you talk Absolutely. about them as if and you know them. It's so great. And I, I, and I encourage you to look into the Golden Hill Pagussets because they had owned so much land, most of the land in Bridgeport. And as time went on, they had a lawsuit and so on and so forth. It didn't go far enough in. And I believe to this day they're still not a recognized tribe, um, even though they have enough things that should say that. Um, but, you know, again, timing is everything with this. And um, finally, that question that goes, well, these people don't look like Indians because mm. – a lot of black people married right. indigenous people, and uh, that was a very common <laughs> statement. Yes, and there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of pushback both from white communities and native um, on these intermarriages. But of course, native people always self determined who was native, and that's what's that's still important. rather controversial today. It, People it in be. and out of a tribe. That's another whole conversation. Yes. Catherine Hermes, Wayne Winston, thank you very much for joining us today. This has been a foray that I have really enjoyed, and we do want to have you back on the show, Catherine. Thanks. I appreciate I think it. It's you're been pretty much to be here. an undiscovered treasure for us. Other people know about you, but an undiscovered treasure for us. So thank you very yeah, much you. for coming on the show. Wayne Winston, you have a great week. We'll be back behind the mic together tomorrow. And I want to thank you for joining us. Paul Paselli with Connecticut Today from 2 to 6. And coming up, Eric Erickson. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please share it with your friends. And as always, feel free to contact me at Lisa at LisaWexler.com.